Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, you along with your Son, and the Holy Spirit that is dispersed out among your people, God, you are the great I Am. Lord, everything in you is good and right and true. Your heart is kind. You are love. I ask, Lord God, that you would bring a loving word. Maybe it's a loving word of comfort today. Maybe it's a loving word of uh, just confronting someone's heart. Lord God, maybe there's somebody in this, in this space or who would be hearing this message. God, maybe, uh, maybe you need this message and yet it's just going to hit you like a ton of bricks. I pray that even in the midst of that, Father God, that you right now, no matter if you're, you're, you're in this place uh, with us or, or whether it's someone alone, Lord God, your spirit, I pray that it would just permeate our ears uh, and our minds and our hearts and that you would start doing a work right now. Lord God, I thank you for the gospel message of Jesus Christ. I thank you for the hope that it brings. I thank you that we have a basis of truth in a world that tells us there's no truth. And we cling to you and you alone. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in our second to last uh, message in the series called Catalyst. And we are going to be in Ezra 10. Uh, we are, uh, this is actually the last chapter in Ezra. So don't start at the beginning of Ezra. Start at the end of Ezra. You'll get there a lot quicker. Um, Ezra 10, we're going to be reading through verses 1 through 17 here in just a couple minutes. And then next week, we're actually going to jump into just a one message, uh, uh, basically just one message in the book of Nehemiah. Um, Nehemiah was, he, he did ministry at the same time as Ezra. There's a little bit of overlap in their ministry. Their purposes uh, and, and what they did were different, but yet they made a great uh, tag team um, as far as bringing the message of hope to those people and also some uh, discouraging, some bad behavior as what we're going to see right now. But they had kind of a tag team effort going on at their time in ministry. Well, last week uh, it was kind of heavy, and last week's message from Ezra 9 and Ezra 10 are very much, um, they very much go hand in hand. So some of these themes are going to be overlapping, and they should. It should feel like, oh, I've heard that before, because you did, and that's important. But before we get to that, I just want to ask some questions, right? So this is kind of, this is family talk, right? You're family. Everybody looking at me? Are we family? Look around, all right? We, we say here at the church, we, we want to be the family that you want to tell your friends about, right? Because we all have that crazy uncle we wish we didn't have, but we do. You know, and at the fam- you know, like you hide your kids from, from him at uh, your family reunion. You're like, that's uncle, where, where does he live? I don't know, not around here. Don't go talk to him. You know, like you see, squeeze him a little bit tighter. You know that that's true. Um, it happens in every family. You're laughing because you probably have a couple. Anyway, so this is family talk. So I just want to ask you this. In baseball, what's a win? What's a win in baseball? This is your opportunity to talk in church, all right? Throw it out there. What is a win in baseball? 
a run. That's, that's, a, that's a win. That would be an example, right? In basketball, this isn't difficult, right? I'm going to follow along the same line here just in case that, that you're asleep during the first one or you're a little bit afraid to talk. In basketball, what, what's a win in basketball? Right, points, right? What about in soccer? Now, soccer is a little bit different because, you know, they play about 60 minutes and there's only one goal usually in a lot of those, like, you know, in, in the real uh, very competitive sports league. So you sit there for 60 minutes and you're like waiting for something to happen. But then a goal is a win. Let me ask you this. Those things are pretty easy to define, right? What, what, what's a win in baseball? We know. A win in basketball? We know. But what is a win in a Christian? What's a win? I'll tell you what a lot of people would think in this situation. A lot of people think a win for a Christian is, A, they get saved, and it is. It's the biggest win, right? Absolutely. It, it is a win over your soul. That is, that is a profound thing, and the ripple effect of that, of the gospel message, permeating the dark places of our mind and our heart, changes us for life, right? But is that the only win? No, it's not. Another thing that people would probably say is a win for a Christian is when they come through with believer's baptism. That means that they have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and yet they are making a public uh, a profession of their faith and saying, you know what, I am all into Jesus, and His Holy Spirit's all into me. I believe the gospel. I want to live out the gospel. The Holy Spirit's in me, and I want it to thrive through me. And those things, those are true, and those are wins. But what happens after you get saved and after you get baptized? You see, because a lot of Christians, we kind of, we're, we, have, we celebrate and we should when somebody gets saved. We should. It's, it's huge, monumental. We should celebrate the story that comes from that salvation because oftentimes it's just years of just burden and grief and doubt and fear and maybe abuse and yet God's heart, God just changes their heart and sets them free from the bondage of sin and death. Huge. But yet, many of you, as I look around this room, many of you, you've already been saved, you've already been baptized, and yet you would give me those two things, but then what does a win look like for someone who is a follower of Jesus after those events. What is it? That's one. Evangelism, that's one. That's, that's, a, that's a huge one. That's what we're supposed to do. We're called to do that. Right. Every day that we successfully live for Jesus. I love that. Now, that, that is a great truth. But let me say this. It, to live for Jesus, we also have to have a reduction in sins. Right? Right? So for you, and I guess my, my point in this, in this whole talk, and hopefully you're paying attention now, my point in this whole talk is for you to find victory in Jesus. Last week I talked about, and this will be on the screen, that we have victory in Jesus is found when we continually confront our sins. So you're a Christian, you've received Jesus Christ, you're a true follower of His, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it, it, your, your life's being changed, and yet you, maybe you've been baptized, and for you, Christian, a win for you is when there is a reduction in your sins. But for us to have victory in Christ, we have to continually confront our sins, as difficult as they are, as painful as it may be. We have to do that. Because for the gospel to permeate the dark places of our mind and heart, for us to be changed, and that's what we all want, right? 
I realize all of us were on this campaign of peace and hope, but the only way that you can have that at a profound level is for you to be changed. And that's what the gospel does. So I want to give you just some five very basic principles today from this text that you see with Ezra as he is speaking into his audience, and I would speak this into you. There's five very basic principles on how you can have wins in your life, Christian. If you are not a follower of Jesus, these five things will have no effect to you. You're not. If you're, if you're just kicking the tires on the faith, we welcome you. This is one of the great reasons why, why this church exists and really one of the distinctions of this church from others, I think. But I would say this. These five points have no relevance to you because you have to submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and accept Him as Savior for your soul in order for you to be on the track that I'm going to talk about today. That's a decision that you have to make. And I would say that maybe by the end of this talk, uh, maybe right at the end of this talk, maybe you just need to come and speak to someone at the door about that. The gospel changes everything. But yet, family talk. We have victory in Jesus, and it is found when we continually confront our sins. One of the things that we talked about from last week in kind of threading these two things together, last week we said that, that emotion, desire, and passion have all become victimized by the fall. Therefore, they all must be surrendered to Christ. Every part of it, every part of it, let me, let me illustrate it this way. Anybody know what these things are? You can read the label and cheat. That's cool. I actually pointed it toward you to help you in your effort. These are snowballs. If you've never had a snowball, um, you're missing out. These things are incredible. They are wrapped in coconut. There's a little bit of marshmallow covered in chocolate cake, and they have a creamy filling. So everything that you would want, they pretty much have. Now, I love these things. As a matter of fact, these got me through middle school and much of high school. The reason why I exist today is these things right here. I might be the reason, uh, any, anyway, why, why the education department had, or the Department of Education had to go through and, and change the meal plans. I'm not really sure. But I may be a case study for them. But these things, uh, now, I, I love these things. I love everything coconut. I love coconut, coconut pie, coconut cake. Some of you make amazing coconut cake, and please make it again. It is really, really good. I love coconut. I'm weird for coconut. I, I once went to, uh, I've actually been to Puerto Rico a couple times, but I spent the better part of a day trying to knock a coconut from a coconut tree so it would fall down and so I could eat the coconut. That's a true story. And I have to tell you, eventually, I ended up getting the coconut down. I did. And then it took me like an hour of throwing that thing like a baseball against the asphalt, trying to crack the coconut in half, of which I did because I'm persistent. I eventually got it broken in half, but you know what I found out? It tastes disgusting right off of a tree. <laughs> Absolute waste of time. Absolute. It was terrible. I wasted a whole afternoon of, of my leave time in the Navy trying to get coconut. But, you know, here's the thing. If I ate these things as much as I want to eat these things, I would be very unhealthy. Like, I'm tempted to eat these things all the time. I, I could eat coconut every day. Coconut shrimp, just like Bubba. I mean, coconut, you know, shrimp. I could do coconut shrimp. I could do, uh, I just I recently just had coconut curry, uh, coconut curry chicken. It is incredible. You should try it. But I love coconut, and I'm, I'm weird about coconut. You're thinking I'm weird right now, and that's cool. It's not new news to me. I know that I am. But if I ate coconut every time that I wanted to, it would be very unhealthy for me, right? 
Coconut is a common grace. This snowball right here through Hostess. I'm also glad they brought the Twinkie back. Because for a minute, it wasn't looking good. But then they brought it back. They rescued the Twinkie, which was a great day. The better, actually something, this is totally relevant. But I will give you this. Something a little bit better than a Twinkie is the Zinger. Is the little red Zingers. Those things are amazing. Amazing. We ought to start a campaign. Uh, Anyway, I'm back now. This, all of this, to prove the point. That emotion, desire, and passion have all been victimized by the fall. This is a common grace to me. I could eat these things all day long. And yet they they exist for everyone, right? If you can afford them on planet Earth, you can get one of those snowballs. You can have them. That is an example of common grace. But if that common grace is taken too far, if the desire has gone to a place that it turns south and it turns sinful, and now we realize that it's been victimized by the fall, but for in order for us to be made right, we have to surrender all of the common graces to the Lordship of Jesus. We have to. We have to. Physical intimacy is a great thing. It is a, it is a common gift for, for not just believers, but also unbelievers, right? Of which, if we're to do a poll in here, and you say, you know what? Yeah, I, I wish God would take that back. None of you would volunteer that God would take that back, right? N- none of you would. It's a common grace to be enjoyed by all people. But yet, if taken out of the context of what the New Testament says, it becomes immorality. It's a common grace. Is it not? Water. You're thirsty. If that, if that thirst leads to drunkenness, you've just taken a common grace of water and now, or, or whatever, whether it's wine or something like that. There's nothing wrong with drinking wine. The, the Bible gives a clear outline on how to drink it, where to drink it, and, and the amount to drink it. And yet, if you're to have a glass of wine, and that's no big deal, that's a common grace. We can just enjoy that. They have for centuries all over the world. But if I sit back and I decide I just want to kick back a bottle of white Zinfandel myself, all of a sudden, now you become, or I would become rather, a picture of what this is saying. Now it's become victimized by the fall. So everything, even the common graces that we have, have been victimized by the fall and must be surrendered to Christ. Marriage, even in the context of marriage. If I were to treat my wife like a piece of Samsonite luggage, right? Marriage is is a great and wonderful thing. We talked about that at length last week. It's a common grace. But if I were to treat her like a piece of luggage, all of a sudden... I would be taking that marriage and I would be turned upside down. Then I would be proving positive that it has been affected by the fall. But in order for us to have victory in Christ, those emotions, desires, and passions have to be surrendered to Jesus. They have to be. Victory in Christ is found when we continually confront our sins. Last week, uh, I shared this verse, and I would like to dig in just a little bit deeper to it. Had a lot of scripture last week, and I feel like we just kind of did a flyover of this. I want to land on it just for a second. This will be on the screen. 1 John 2.16 says this, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now, the, the word world is, the, word, is the, the Greek word cosmos, and it means that everything that is, or rather anything that is hostile to God, anything 
that is hostile to God. So it, it shows the other end of the spectrum. It's either of the Lord or it's not of the Lord. It's, it's the Lord and, and it's, it's godliness. And right over here is cosmos. That is, the, that is whatever is used that is being used in a way that is hostile to God's perfect design. And his, his design is perfect. Anything. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. You see, it's the, the lusting. That's, the, that's when you know. When you start lusting, you start, your mind starts wondering to another woman, men. It's when, when, when your eyes are not on your wife anymore and they start drifting somewhere else. That's when it's gone south. Now those desires are being proven positive that they've been affected by the fall. And now those desires have to be surrendered to Christ. But at the heart of that desire, there's nothing wrong with, with desiring your, your wife or your husband, but it is absolutely wrong to desire someone else's. So in all things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, where your eyes wander, the pride of life, that's the mentality, I got this, I can handle it. It's just a little sin. It's no big deal. It's just between, just between uh, two consenting adults. It's not going to affect anyone else. We're going to see in this text, it drastically affects other people. Yet, we try to convince ourselves because of the pride of life that we got this taken care of. It's all good. I can handle this. We're two consenting adults. It only affects us, which is a lie. And yet, we're told in Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. There's not a righteous man or woman on earth who never sins. We're all in the same boat. And the boat's sinking. We need Jesus. We're all in the same boat. Our text this morning, we're going to go through this a little bit different than uh, what I have in the past. Uh, we're actually going to take uh, the, the five main rallying points in this talk. And once I get to the scripture that that, that uh, point kind of rallies around, I'm going to stop and then jump into uh, the next one. So we're going to start in verse 1, chapter 10 of the writings of Ezra. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a loud crowd of Israelites, men and women and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. It had just been brought to their attention. Stop right there. It had just been brought to their attention that what they were doing was wrong. They, they kind of knew in their heart that it was wrong, but they were following their desires and their passions. They went against God's perfect design. God had told them not to intermarry with the people around them. And the reason why, he said, that to not marry those people around them is because sensuality and sexuality was their God. Sensuality and sexuality was their God. So God's word was speaking to the people in the writings of Moses in Deuteronomy. And he says, do not take any partners from, from the surrounding people groups. And if you were here last week, you know that they did. So this becomes the, the background for this whole chapter. But Ezra was praying and confessing and weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God. A large crowd of Israelites, men and women and children gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Takeaway number one 
for this morning is you have to own it. You have to own your part of the mess. You have to own the things in your life, even if you're not absolutely clear on what they are. And I think part of God's grace is He doesn't give us everything at once. He gives us things little by little because we would be so overwhelmed. But we have to own our own sin. That's what you see here. Ezra goes before these people. He owns the sin of the people. And the people are gathered around him. Men, women, and children. And they're moved because he's moved. They're moved because he's moved. Look how much he's moved. Praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God. Like, that is so countercultural than what we experience today. That seems weird for us, but it was absolutely normal in the Old Testament. The way when they would go through and they would repent of sin or mourn sin, they would do it publicly. Everybody else would know, wow, that person is really struggling with something. But the whole audience is moved by what Ezra is doing. He's, he's leading this, and he owns it. He owns his part in the mess. Now there's this corruption and the intermarriage has happened with all of the, the, the surrounding countries, just as, or people groups rather, just as God told them not to, they did. Ezra now, on the, the second exile trip, he comes back, he finds the condition of the people a mess. He's burdened with it. He weeps, he mourns, he wails, he throws himself down, he humiliates himself. Before everyone else. Not to prove a point. Because he was living the very truth that he wanted to be lived out amongst the people. He was owning it. Yet many of us are like this. Several years ago, uh, when we lived in Illinois, we had a church basketball league. And we would go out and we'd play basketball once uh, once a week, and it was incredible. We never practiced. We were all a bunch of old people. We'd come back, aches and pains. We couldn't, we couldn't practice because we'd be sore all week, and then we'd start feeling good on the day we would play, and then we'd be in recovery mode for the next six days. So anyway, so we would go, and we would play basketball. Jeff was a really good friend of mine. He was an inch shorter than me, but he was like quick as lightning. But Jeff also, he didn't have a whole lot of skills, and, and, but what he didn't make up in skills, he made up in aggression. So when he would go out on the basketball court, he was very aggressive to the place or, or to the point where he would just like run into you, bump into you. He would foul you. He would maul you. And he could really give a rip half the time. But what Jeff would do is most of the time, if he fouled you, he would deny the fact that he even fouled you. So he'd go and he'd bump into you be like, dude, what are you doing? But he would deny it. But you see, when it was bad enough, and when he was, he was really kind of, honestly, I think he was kind of prideful when he would do it. Like, if he had had enough, and he'd been bumped around enough, he would bump, you know, he would just run into people. There was one time specifically, somebody went up for a layup, and this is something you don't do in basketball, uh, just in case you need a little basketball talk, here you go. In basketball, there's like an unwritten rule. If you're going up for a layup, you don't like run underneath a person and take their legs out from under them, because then there's like a big meat sandwich on the court, Right? So Jeff totally did that. And a guy went up for a layup. Jeff took the legs out from under him. The guy just, just thud, meat sandwich. I mean, just laid out on the ground. Jeff raised his hand. He's like, I did that one. I did that. See, when it came to the small things, he didn't want to take any credit for it. But when it came to something big, he's like, 
man, I, I can't deny that one. I just took his legs out from under him. Hope you can get up. You see, many times in our lives, in our spiritual lives, we do the same thing. We ignore what we think are the small things, but yet when it comes to the big things, then we start to own up to it. But we just kind of ignore the, the small things. But the problem with that mentality is those small things become the big things. So we have to, we have to surrender all things to Jesus to be made new, to be regenerated. So the, the born again can just continue to flourish in our minds, in our hearts. But first, we have to own it. We have to own our sin and say, you know what? I, I am a sinner. Psalm 143, verse 11 says this, For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. Our lives would be enriched if we were to pray this on a regular basis. For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. You've owned your sin and you want to be, you want to be built up. You want to be new. You want to be regenerated. You want to be changed. You want peace. You want hope. If we would just, not just claim it in, in some vague spirituality way, but if we would just, we would pray this, meditate on this, for the sake of your name. Not for the sake of ourselves. That we would address God and say, you know what? I own my part in this failure. Maybe for some of you, the thing that you have to be a catalyst of is your marriage. And maybe your marriage is seven sorts of jacked up right now. And, it's, and the reason why your marriage is not getting any better is because you haven't owned up to your responsibility in the dysfunction. And you're sitting pointing your finger at your spouse and you're wanting to blame them for everything. But the reality is your marriage won't get better until you own your part of the mix. It won't happen. Some of you, maybe you need to be a catalyst in your home with your kids. And, and you sit down and you say, man, I want my kids to be on the spiritual track. I want them to be on, on the godly track. I want them to, to chase after Jesus and all that. And the reason why they're not is because you're not. You have to own your part of that dysfunction. As big or small as you think it is. You have to own that. The only way that you can be made right with God is when you own your part of the sin failure. We want victory in Jesus. We have to continually confront our sins. Step number one, you have to own it. Just say, you know what? I'm a sinner. I'm helpless. I drift. If there's a sin pothole, it seems I walk in it every time. Own your part of the failure. Own your, own your part. Takeaway number one. Verse number two, find our second takeaway. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel... One of the descendants of Elam said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples, uh, from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, in spite of the fact that they just own their part of the failure, in spite of this, what does it say at the end of verse 2? There is still hope for Israel. But in spite of this, they said, We blew it. God set a perfect standard for us not to intermarry. We owned it. We did it. We failed. The second takeaway is this. You have to cling to it. You have to cling to the goodness of God. You have to cling to, to the mercy of God. I mapped out last week the, the six different uh, examples of God's mercy. The fact that He left a remnant. He gave light to the eyes. He, a little relief in their bondage. 
He's shown kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia that God would use a pagan king to set the captives free. He gave them a wall of protection. I said that was a foreshadowing of what we'd actually be talking about next week. He's granted us new life. And the last one, that He has punished us far less than our sins have deserved. We cling to that, Christian. You want victory in Christ? Cling to the goodness and grace of God. You have to. So we own our part and we cling to it. We cling to the goodness and the grace of God. We have to humbly request more of God's grace to confront our sins and to confess sin. We have to humbly request to know God more deeply and to see the lost come to know Christ. We have to humbly request a flourishing in the church and a deeper conviction for the lost souls. But the basis of that is to humbly request it. Not for you, not for me, for His glory. That's what the psalmist was saying in Psalm 143, verse 11. So we have to cling to it. Let me just give you some promises. Psalm 145, starting in verse 18, it says this. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desires the desires of those who fear Him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love Him. That's good, isn't it? That's rich. That's what we cling to. We don't cling to our, our old way of living. We, we cling to the promises of God. We cling to, to just, a, uh, just a, a walking in grace and, and just trusting in the goodness of God that, that His heart is good. Even when you're unfaithful, He is steadily faithful. There's never been a time that God has been unfaithful. Never. We believe that Ezra pinned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 verse 18 says this. Maybe this is what you need to pray. Maybe this would be a great point of application in your life. To just say, open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your law. Open my eyes. Maybe you need to just, you just cling to God's goodness, but you have to own up to say, you know what? I've had my eyes closed way too long. I'm not living in victory in Christ because my eyes are closed to the things of God. Maybe you have a salvation story, you have a baptism story at whatever age it was. But I want you to have victory. I want to have victory as a Christian. I want to have wins as a Christian. I'm I'm trying to give you a roadmap on how to have those wins. So the second takeaway is we cling to it. But to do so, we have to open your eyes that I may see the wonderful things of your law. What about if we're going to kind of combine these two verses, they're not... Obviously connected, but I just want to just kind of connect these for just a second. Psalm 119, verse 18, and then 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Open my eyes that I may see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Open my eyes to the light of the gospel that I may see the glory of Christ. Open our eyes. 
Many of you, you're living your, your, your lives with your eyes shut. You're not, you're not experiencing the best that God has to offer for you. You're not living in the abundant life that He promises. And maybe it's because you don't have your eyes open to the things of God. Own that. Own that. You don't stay in your sin, but you own that. But then also you cling to God's goodness and God's grace and God's love and God's faithfulness and God's perseverance and His merciful touch. Again, Psalm 19 says, Turn my eyes. This is not on the screen. I just want this to wash over you. Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. Reassure me of your promise made to those who fear you. Help me abandon my shameful ways for your regulations are good. I long to obey your commandments. Renew my life with your goodness. Takeaway number three taken from verse three is you have to admit it. You have to admit it. You own it. You cling to it. You admit it. Verse three. Verse 3, now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to your law. So at this point in the mix, they are they're admitting it. They're saying, you know what? We've got to do this. We've owned it. We're clinging to God's goodness. We understand that we've violated God's commandments. And now, now they're, they're just admitting it publicly. And they're wanting to do so. And they're wanting to make a covenant with God. That means we've broken covenant with God and we want to come back. A word that Christians use is a word fellowship. See, you can be in and out of fellowship with God. You can be in and out. You can be saved and be out of fellowship with God and not, and not be living in victory. As a matter of fact, you can live miserably as, as a Christian in defeat if you lose fellowship with God. The five takeaways will help you maintain fellowship with God. But we admit it. And they, they willingly admitted their part and their failure. Let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and those who fear the commands of our God. You see, this bothers me. This bothers me because God's people had failed. They had failed by, by, by intermarrying the people group around and now the answer for the problem is to send whoever their spouses were to send them away. You see, and we see this even in our culture. Two people get together, they have a child. They have a child. Dad's out of the picture. Mom's left to raise the child. In essence, that's what's happening here. Now we're creating a social problem because it was a spiritual problem. And I have to tell you, in our day and age, I, I'll just tell you this. I was so burdened with this yesterday. I went around yesterday as we're passing out water at the parade, which was phenomenal. Thank you for all of the water. I don't even know how many bottles. The, in the hundreds, eight, nine hundred bottles of water, all of it was passed out. Nothing but positive things from those people. But I, will, I want to tell you this. As, as great as that was, I was burdened because what my eyes saw. I saw a bunch of young 
for all intent and purposes, they absolutely look like unwed mothers with a bunch of children. And I thought, oh my goodness, that is an absolute epidemic in our culture. And it's not a color thing, it's a people thing. It's, a, it's not even a generation thing now because what had happened, what has happened three generations ago, maybe with my parents' generation, has now has happened in my generation, and now my generation has raised children, and now they're having children. And there are people becoming grandchildren at the age of 35. Think about that. Such an epidemic. My eyes were so open to this yesterday. And I shared it with Shane. I was just, I was moved by it. I looked around. And I was like, I, I can't even believe this. And yet that's the same thing that's happening here. What was first a spiritual problem now became a social problem. Now they're going to be sent away from this area. They're going to probably go back to their homeland. And now they're going to be despised there by their people because now if there are women with children, now who's going to be the advocate for those kids? Who's going to be speaking for on behalf of those kids. But it was a spiritual problem that became a social problem. And, and back to our day and age, if you look at the statistics, what's happening in the church mirrors what happens in their culture right now. There is no difference. Until we become the people of God that God wants us to be, we will forfeit the right and opportunity to redeem the culture around us if we look just like it. It's when we're supposed to be living in godliness, but yet we're living our life in a sense of cosmos. We're godly, trying to be godly, maybe, and yet if our life doesn't mirror the message that we promote, then all of a sudden our words say godliness, but our actions show, our actions show cosmos hostility to God. A spiritual problem turned into a social problem. Same thing happens today. Takeaway number four, we're going to get from verses 11 through 14. Oh, excuse me. That was verse three, but we're going to catch up through there, starting in verse four. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We support you, so take courage and do it. So now they're, they're backing Ezra. He says, yay, take courage. We're going to do it. Lead, it. lead the charge here. We're, we're, we're right behind you. We're going to do this thing together. So Ezra rose up. He put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went up to the room of Jehohanan, Nan, 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 something like that, close, and son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he, was, he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. The unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders. And he, would he himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles? That's a bad deal. That's a, it's a really bad deal. That means if they didn't show up within those three days, they were going to be dispersed, in essence, as unbelievers, as people who don't even belong to their people group to begin with. Verse 9. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem on the twentieth day of the ninth month, and all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, 
greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Because of the rain. Verse 11. Now, make confession to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You are right. We must do as you say. But there are many people here, and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. I love the detail of God's Word. It talks about the rainy season and talks about the rain, even in this time. So it isn't just some vague sense of the setting. Like you, you get the whole condition and, and, and really what's going on with the weather. That they can't just sit outside. Now I think by the sovereignty of God and the providence of God, the rain, it's the rainy season, the rain is actually driving them in to force them to hear Ezra's message. I love that. I love that. As a matter of fact, some of the scholars kind of debate that and they say, you know, there's a really this important element with, with the rain, what is it? And there's different viewpoints on that. I gave you mine. Verse 10. Then Ezra, the priest, stood up and said to them, You've been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now make, uh, now make confession to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You are right, we must do as you say, but there are many people here, and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken it cannot be taken of in a day or two because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in your towns who has married a foreign woman come in at a set time along with the elders and judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God is in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Josiah, son of Tikvah, supported by Meshulam and Sabathiah, the, the Levite, opposed this. So nearly everyone's on board. Nearly everyone's on board. So they owned it. They've, they're clinging to, to the promises of God. Them as a people group, we should do that as, a Christian, or as Christians. They've admitted it. And now they're at the point where they're working at it. They're working at it. You see this in verse 11 through 14. He says, you're right. We must do as you say. We must do as you say. Then it says in the middle of verse 14. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time along with the elders and judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. What they're doing is they're showing repentance. They're repenting of their sin. And, and in their specific sin in that setting is they have, they have intermarried with, with people around them. So even if they love the people around them, and I'm sure that they did, they love them. Now they've made this commitment to God. And they said, you know what? We are committed to God more so than I'm committed to be in this relationship that I should have never been in to begin with. And now I'm getting out of this relationship. And that becomes the act of repentance. But repentance always starts with the vertical before it goes to the horizontal. It always starts with the vertical. Repenting of, of owning your sin, understanding that God is good. 
admitting that you're a sinner and you're owning it, it always starts with the vertical, but it has to go to the horizontal. Repentance does. And that's what happens here. That you see this interplay with, with God and Ezra and the people, and now they, that has gone from the vertical to the horizontal, and now they're sending their loved ones away because of the spiritual problem has now become a social problem. Started in the heart. Started in the heart. I want to encourage you with this, Christian. I, I realize this sounds harsh, but uh, repentance is, is a wonderful thing. Repentance is a great thing. Repentance is a way for you to get back in relationship with God. The way for you to get back into fellowship with God. The way that you can get back into covenant with God. That's the way. It's not a harsh thing. It's not like, it's not like the angry father who, who's so heavy-handed with his kids. It's a loving father wanting to tug you, to pull you away from that life of sin, that life of cosmos and hostility to God, to pull you back to godliness. That act of repentance is a way of getting your heart back in line with His. It's a great thing. It's a great thing. And repentance is not just feeling bad for getting caught. As what some of us are prone to do. We get caught so we feel bad. We feel bad. So then we say, well, God, I failed you. I'm not going to do that. And then all of a sudden, you turn around. You forgot the commitment that you just made, and now you picked it up again. That's not repentance. That's not repentance. Hasty repentance leads to shallow revival. This is one of the, the greatest revival stories in all of the Bible. Hasty repentance leads to shallow Revival. That means you're not truly changed. You're just, just on the surface. God wants more for you than that. The fifth takeaway is this. The fifth takeaway is we need to follow up with it. Look at verse 16 and 17. So the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were the family heads each from uh, each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases. They, to investigate the cases, they took each specific example, each violation. They took and brought each one of those. They followed up with them on an individual level. And at the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married the foreign women. And we're not going to read all of these. But you know what's shameful? All of the people who violated God's standards, their names start in verse 18 and go for the rest of the chapter. So for all of the centuries, as long as, as there is a church, as long as we have the Word of God, there's going to be an example by name of all of the people who failed God's perfect standard and who disobeyed what He had told them to do. And yet we see in the midst of that text, they followed up with it. They followed up with the claims on an individual basis. For you to live in victory, Christian, you, you, can't, just, you, you can't just go through and just kind of go through the motions. You can't just go through the motions. You won't have peace. You won't have victory. I, I think the two greatest problems in, in the church today, 
The two greatest problems, if I could list it down to two, and there's a bunch of them, I think is complacency and apathy. We've just grown complacent. We just kind of punch the clock on Sunday morning. And I mean, after all, we live in, in the in, in we live in the South and everybody's a Christian and everybody has a church, right? At least we can we convince ourselves to think so. And we've just become so complacent. But we suffer. Our relationships suffer. Everything suffers. Churches suffer. Families suffer. And we're accountable. And we're responsible. We can't become complacent. We have to continue to work on these things. The, the five principles, the, the guiding principle this, uh, principles of this talk, we have to do those for the rest of our lives. But we can have victory. As a matter of fact, we are guaranteed victory if we do those things. This is one of the greatest revival stories in all of the Bible, really, in, in all of humanity, in, in the story of God's people. This is one of the greatest revivals. But think about how difficult that was to do. But they did it. Whatever it is that God has put on your heart that you need to change, maybe the help that you need to seek, maybe you've never, maybe for you, you've never given a dollar to, to a church or to, to fund anything of the Lord. You've never even given a dollar. You, all the money you make, just ex, you think it exists to serve you. You probably need to repent very, very quickly of that. And maybe for you, the thing that you're supposed to be a catalyst of is maybe rooted in cosmos, hostility to God. But until you surrender that to the lordship of Jesus, you will never, ever have victory. 